This episode is sponsored by our upcoming Day on Changing Consciousness, taking place at the University of Greenwich on the 26th of June, 2022. This will be the Weekend University's first in-person event in over two years, and it's shaping up to be a special occasion. The lectures will focus on consciousness paradigms that go beyond the brain, how they work, why they matter, and how understanding them can enhance your everyday experience of reality. We'll have talks on panpsychism, Is Everything Conscious? by Dr. Philip Goff, from egocentric to ecocentric, changing consciousness through psychedelics from Dr. Sam Gandhi, and Is Reality an Illusion? by Professor Donald Hoffman, who will be appearing via live video link. By attending live, you can interact with the speakers in the Q&A sessions, connect with like-minded participants during the conference, and get CPD certification. And should you be unable to attend in person, you'll also be able to tune in from the comfort of home with a live stream pass. As a listener of this podcast, you can get a disc on your ticket if you go to bit.ly forward slash ccj hyphen twu and use the discount code POD when registering. That's POD, all one word, when registering. Okay, everybody, welcome back to our third and final session here today. Um, I'm just going to let a few more people filter in before um, I introduce uh, Dr. Zweig for her talk on meeting the shadow. Um, Carl Jung discovers gold in the dark side, which sounds pretty, pretty interesting to me. Um, so we'll just give it a couple, maybe one more minute. And well, there it's 3.30 now, so I can just, I think we can just go ahead. Okay, so Dr. Connie Zweig is a retired therapist, co-author of Meeting the Shadow and Romancing the Shadow, author of Meeting the Shadow of Spirituality, and a novel entitled A Moth to the Flame, The Life of Sufi Poet Rumi. Dr. Zweig's latest book, The Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul, extends shadow work into late life and teaches aging as a spiritual practice. Connie has been doing contemplative practices for 50 years and she is a wife and grandmother and was initiated as an elder by Sage Ing International in 2017. After investing in all of these roles, she is now practicing the shift from role to soul. You can learn more about Connie's work at www.conniezweig.com. So Connie, whenever you're ready, um, just get started and best of luck. Thank you, Niall. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. Really happy to be with you here today. Um, as you know, uh, Niall just told you, I'm the author of several books about the shadow, and the new book extends that work into midlife and beyond. So some of you may be familiar with the shadow and others not. Today I'm going to introduce you to the terminology, the framework, and the method of shadow work, which was developed by my co-author, Steve Wolf, and I in Romancing the Shadow. Um, we'll have an hour together before our Q&A, and I'm going to present material and then pause for you to write and self-reflect about it as you begin to introduce yourself to your own shadow. Um, the shadow is slippery. 
its nature is to hide. And so if you don't follow the first time, I'll be repeating the process and um, you, will be, you will get it at some point. It's not easy to look at a blind spot in our awareness like the shadow. So be patient with yourself and hopefully <clears throat> by the end of our time together, you'll have a sense of how to continue to practice shadow work at home. Or if you're a clinician, you can pick up one of my books and begin to work with your clients with this orientation. So let me begin with a story. In Oscar Wilde's only novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, the central character, Dorian, who you see here, is a beautiful, vain young man in 19th century England. He sees a painting of himself that's startlingly handsome and without a blemish. And suddenly he desires to remain youthful and perfect forever with no sign of aging or imperfection. To this end, he makes a pact with the devil. All signs of his aging and degeneration, even evidence of his greed and cruelty would from then on appear on the painting rather than on his face. And the painting gets hidden away, never to be seen by anyone in a dark closet. But from time to time, Dorian's curiosity gnaws at him and he pulls the picture out of the darkness and takes a quick glance, only to see the youthful face growing more and more terrible. <clears throat> Each of us is like Dorian Gray. We seek to present a beautiful, innocent face to the world, a kind, courteous demeanor, a youthful, intelligent image. And so we push away those qualities that don't fit the image and don't enhance our self-esteem and make us stand proud, but instead bring us shame and make us feel small. We shove into the dark cavern of the unconscious those feelings that make us uneasy, hatred, rage, jealousy, greed, lust, shame, and those behaviors that are deemed wrong by the culture, addiction, laziness, aggression, dependency, and thereby we create what could be called shadow content. Like Dorian's painting, those qualities ultimately take on a life of their own, forming an invisible twin that lives just behind our life or just beside it, but at, as distinct from the one we know as a stranger. <clears throat> The stranger known as the shadow is us, yet is not us. Hidden from awareness, it's not a part of our conscious self-image. And so it seems to appear abruptly out of nowhere in a range of behaviors from off-color jokes to abusive acts. And when it emerges, it feels like an unwanted visitor leaving us ashamed and mortified. I want you to answer quickly and note down without editing. Don't let your ego 
uh, tell you what to say here, all right? What do you feel? What, are, what do you hear with the word shadow? What are your first associations? Just answer quickly without editing, please. Do you have a shadow? What do you feel about that? What will happen if someone sees it? How are you like Dorian Gray? I'm going to give you a few minutes to contemplate these questions. So personal shadow is a term coined by Carl Jung to refer to the personal unconscious. The shadow develops in each of us as children as we identify with socially acceptable traits like politeness, generosity, caretaking, to find love and acceptance from adults. And in this way, we form a conscious ego and we banish the opposite traits like rudeness, stinginess, self-centeredness into the unconscious shadow. So the ego and shadow develop in tandem. And each is reinforced by the messages, even the glances of parents, teacher, clergy, and friends when we try to gain their approval. If our sadness is shamed, it's exiled into the shadow. If our anger is punished, it's banished too. But if our musical or artistic talent is dismissed, it too gets banished into the shadow. And so it's not only what we think of as negative qualities and traits, it's also some of our gifts that get repressed there. And our egos develop to accommodate the loss of those authentic feelings and talents. The great poet Robert Bly liked to say, when we're one or two years old, we have a 360 degree personality, energy radiating out from our bodies and minds like a living globe of energy. And one day we notice that our parents don't like a part of the ball. They say, can't you be still? It isn't nice to hit your brother. So behind us, we carry an invisible bag and the parts of us that our parents don't like get shoved into the bag. And by the time we go to school, the bag is growing large. And the teacher says, good kids don't get angry. So our anger goes into the bag and we become nice and our bag is a mile long. And then in high school, we do a lot of bag stuffing to be accepted by our peers. Maybe we stuff our intelligence to be with athletes or we stuff our athletic gifts to be with the honor students. And by the time we're 20, we only have a slice of that globe. And then we need a woman who has her thin slice or a man with his and we marry. 
and we think we know the person, even though there are huge parts of each other in the bag. And so Robert Bly says, we spend our lives until we're 20 stuffing the bag, and we spend the rest of our lives trying to get everything out again. So please read these points and make some notes about them for yourself. Identify the family feelings, attitudes, and behaviors that shaped your conscious identity. And again, no editing, just free association. Write it quickly. And then identify the family feelings, attitudes, and behaviors that were forbidden and repressed. And then identify the sources of those messages that resulted in shadow making. So take a minute with these first three questions, please. And now question number four. Recall the specific strategies that your adult caregivers used to correct, limit, or punish your behavior, requiring that you repress it into the shadow. Did they make direct statements like, big boys don't cry, we don't say that in our family, or God will punish you? Did they use the threat of punishment if you do that, you'll go to your room and miss dinner. Did they use actual physical punishment? Did they use shame or tone of voice? Contempt. Rage. Did they use reinforcement? When you do something good, they feed you or you get candy. Did they model an open expression of feelings and opinions, or did they shut them down?
So, um, the shadow is formed through repression, unknowingly stuffing bad, quote, bad feelings and behaviors away into the unconscious where they build charge and erupt later in our lives. And we meet the shadow in these small eruptions every day. <clears throat> when we feel possessed by a mood or an action that we can't control, like rage, jealousy, depression, anxiety. When we feel humiliated by an unacceptable part of ourselves, the critic, addict, thief, liar, miser, couch potato. And in a projection, when we unconsciously attribute to others a quality that we can't stand in ourselves, that's when we meet a projected shadow quality. Like we say to ourselves, he's so stupid, she's so critical, he's so lazy, she's such a loser. And in our dreams, when a part of us acts out in a destructive way. So the aim of meeting the shadow consciously is to develop an ongoing relationship with it. <clears throat> and to reclaim our full range of feeling and action and gain insight into its deeper message. Our first response to the emergence of any shadow is denial. We deny that the dream means anything. Oh, it's just a dream. It's gone already. We deny that the mood will last, you know, it's just a feeling, it's not important. We deny that the behavior is us. I'm not really critical. I'm not really a thief, that was just a mistake. Or, I'm not an addict, that was the last time. We deny a projection. That person really is lazy or seductive. I'm right about her. And the denial leads to distraction or dismissal. So we miss the message from the shadow. We fail to learn about ourselves and to, to move toward a more conscious relationship with the unconscious. And that's why we need to quiet our minds and center ourselves. And then we may catch a glimpse of the shadow as it erupts and disappears again. <clears throat> To meet a shadow, to face a difficult, uncomfortable, denied part of ourselves, we need to prepare. We can do this with a centering practice. We can use um, belly breathing to follow the breath or mindfulness or mantra to quiet your mind. Whatever your practice, or if you don't have one, you can learn one. And this is why I like to say shadow work is a spiritual practice, because it's really enhanced by a sitting, centering practice in which you can quiet your mind and watch the shadows as they come up. 
So we learn self-observation by calming and quieting ourselves so that we can shift our conscious attention toward our unconscious process. We begin to notice when a shadow character is erupting by listening to the voice of a shadow character. Ask yourself, is that my shadow? And begin to watch during the day for repeating thoughts and feelings. And ask yourself, is that my shadow? So this is not the time to do anything about it. First, we're cultivating the new habit of noticing, of self-observation. So again, the nature of the shadow is to hide and remain outside of awareness. And our natural response is to deny it. We can catch it in a moment if we tune into, for example, a sarcastic remark. I can't believe how seductive she is. We can catch it when we recognize a projection, when we have a rapid, exaggerated reaction to a stranger. Why can't she stop eating? Why does he need more money? And then it will recede again behind the curtain and with patience, we can invite it out into the light. This process of slowly bringing the shadow into awareness, shedding light on the darkness, forgetting and remembering it again is the nature of shadow work. And eventually, we, we create a conscious relationship with the unconscious, and we reduce its power to sabotage us. Our psyches are not a solid unified front surrounded by a Teflon wall. They're dynamic, fluid worlds populated by many inner characters that come and go quickly, moment to moment, changing our moods, attitudes, and needs. During these shifts, we feel as if we're possessed by a single character, while the other parts remain off stage. While one part acts out, it may not feel like me at all. I call these parts shadow characters because they arise from the unconscious with a personal history, a wound to bear, and a gift to give. The more unconscious the character, the more tightly it holds center stage, leading us to feel and act in unfamiliar self-sabotaging ways. As we begin to build a relationship with them, their grasp loosens and our range of choice expands. And eventually we can offer shadow characters a place in our psyches where their voices can be heard and their deeper needs can be honored. So let's break down the method now. Each shadow character has repetitive cues every time it appears. When you feel centered and grounded, and you might do this now, just drop into your belly and take a few deep breaths. 
you can begin to identify these three cues. Repetitive thoughts or inner dialogue. I'll never succeed. I'm too overweight. I need to get high. I'll do it tomorrow. Always the same inner dialogue. Repetitive feelings. Fear, guilt, sadness, abandonment, anger. And repetitive bodily sensations. Tight abdomen, shoulders, throat closes, feeling of emptiness. So next, we imagine these thoughts and feelings as an inner figure with three dimensions. It has a voice, feelings, and sensations. And let's personify it. Who is it? Give it an image. What does it look like? Male, female, age. And give it a name. The procrastinator, the general, the foodie, the dutiful daughter, the abandoned child, the fraud, the loser, the workaholic, the critic. And as you personify it, you have a name, you have an image, then address it out loud to separate from it. I see you, critic. I'm not going to let you stop me from continuing to paint. I see you, procrastinator. I'm not going to let you stop me from finishing this project. And as you address it out loud, you slowly begin to break your conscious identification with it. You also recognize that the thought, feeling, and sensation is not who you are. This shadow character is not your spiritual identity, your higher self, your spirit, whatever you call that essential nature. It's not that, it's a shadow character. And when you listen to this inner figure and agree with it, how do you feel? If you listen to the critic or the addict, how do you feel? What actions do you take? So now let's use this well-known figure as an example. Um, to do shadow work. The inner child is a key shadow character. Its early life experience in all of us has vast influence over the quality of our lives. Our self-esteem or self-hate, our capacity to express feelings or our incapacity, our sense of safety and anxiety, our sense of acceptance or rejection, our sense of being seen or invisible. And because our parents were not ideally parented themselves, it's likely that they passed on their family shadows to us. A father judges and condemns his sons as weak. 
A mother shames and criticizes her daughter's body. And so the children internalize the parents' voices and begin to treat themselves in the same way, pushing the innocent child into the shadow where it carries feelings of anxiety, loneliness, helplessness, grief, starvation for emotional nourishment. So as adults, when we become attached to someone, we're unaware that the needy child still lives in us in the shadow. But it can be triggered at the slightest hint of criticism, abandonment, or anger by our partner. And we blame them, unaware that the wound is in us. So let's romance this, romance this shadow character. Start with centering yourself a few moments of breathing into your belly. Identify the presence of your inner child, a needy child, an abandoned child, a lonely child, by the three cues, okay? What are the repetitive thoughts of the child? What are the repetitive feelings? And what are the repetitive bodily sensations? I hope you're reflecting and taking some notes. So when you recognize a cue, one of these cues, do your centering practice and observe your internal experience. Let's give the shadow character an image. What does this inner child look like? And let's give it a name. And the next step is address it out loud to separate from it. If you're alone, you may want to try that. See what that's like. I see you, my lonely inner child. I hear you. I love you. I won't abandon you. And then you recognize that this character 
is not who you are. Because as you separate from it and observe it, it comes outside of you like a third person. You address it in the third person and you recognize that is not your true self. So you're meeting a shadow figure and whatever you called it, needy, abandoned, lonely, orphaned, um, inner child, when you listen to it and obey it, what are the consequences? How do you feel about yourself as you obey it? or believe that's who you are. How do you feel about others? So the next step in shadow work is to uncover the origins of the shadow character. Can you trace it back to an earlier time in your life when you felt the same feelings and heard the same messages? You can go to high school or college, you can go to your early childhood. You can trace it back as far as you can. And did you experience or observe emotional or physical abandonment? Is it rooted in that? What were the valid needs of you as a child at that time? And what are the valid needs of this inner figure now? Perhaps he or she needed to be held or heard or fed, or, or find a friend, or to be touched. What are the valid needs of this inner child now? And how can you, as an adult, meet the needs of this child within you? Maybe the child needs to play and stop working so hard. Maybe it needs to feel carefree for a little while 
Maybe it needs to feel soothed or rested. How far back can you trace the feelings and attitudes of your inner child? Who silenced or, okay, so wait a second, I've got to go to my notes here. Um, so Carl Jung wrote, when an inner situation is not made conscious, it happens outside as fate. And fate can mean that it appears in the lives of our children and in the lives of our children's children. So let's talk about the transmission of intergenerational shadow in the formation of the, the needy inner child. So when unconscious feelings and attitudes are passed on from grandparents to parents to children, the elders' hidden shadow issues are absorbed by vulnerable young minds and bodies. Like little sponges, children pick up hatreds, fears, depressions, addictions, even if they're never mentioned. So let's say, a grandfather dismissed his young son when he spoke up and punished him with alone time in a dark room. That son grows up with an inner child who feels unseen, unheard, and abandoned. Eventually, that inner child carries a lot of shame. When he's an adult and he marries, his inner child still has valid needs to be seen and heard. But those needs may be acted out by yelling or demanding or controlling behavior as a shadow character erupts and sabotages his real need for contact and intimacy. This is what happened to my client, Paul. He became a father without an awareness of this intergenerational shadow. He felt unseen and unheard by his own father who had been invisible to his father. And then Paul felt unheard by his wife, even though she tried to be patient and listen to him. When they had a son, he defaulted to the family pattern, dismissing the boy when he expressed an opinion or raised his voice. <clears throat> he devalued the boy's growing mind and a need to assert himself and patronized him with gestures and eye movements. So Paul began to walk out of the room, abandoning his son because the shame of being unheard was intolerable. <clears throat> with shadow work, Paul realized that this, this wound was in him, not being done to him by others. As he worked with his inner child, recognizing the three cues that it was emerging giving it a name, Little Paul, and an image, a boy in a dark room, he began to separate from it and be able to observe it. And then he began to listen to its needs and draw on resources in himself to nurture this inner child. Slowly, Paul fathered Little Paul in a new way and only then could he parent his own son more consciously.
So how far back can you trace the attitudes and feelings of your inner child? Who silenced or shamed the inner child in your parent? Who silenced or shamed you? Who carries the family anxiety and transmitted it to you? Who carries the depression? Let's practice with another example, the addict. This is the character that leads us to act out self-destructive tendencies beyond our ego's control. So you can explore addiction to food, drugs, alcohol, or love as we do this. Um, when we're in the grip of an addiction, it feels like a vague, vague, amorphous, all-controlling energy. It saps our will and brings us shame. Perhaps you saw your parents use food, drugs, or love in an addictive way to stuff their feelings into the shadow, fill their emptiness, and avoid intimate contact. So you observe this strategy and you internalize it in yourselves. Or perhaps a parent used food or love to manipulate or control you. Maybe it was a reward for good behavior and its withdrawal was a punishment. So you formed an inner addict, a part of you that craves an object with the fantasy of fulfillment. Let's romance this shadow character, personifying it and naming it so that we can identify when it erupts and tries to control our behavior. Start with a minute of breathing into your belly. Sorry, I have child here, it should be addict. Meet the shadow, identify the presence of the addict by three cues. Repetitive thoughts, repetitive feelings and bodily sensations. Oh, I have this continuing, sorry, my mistake here. So when you recognize a cue, witness your experience, give the shadow character an image or a name like the addict, address it out loud and separate from it, and recognize that the addict is not who you are, your true self. You're meeting a shadow figure. And when you listen to it, what are the consequences? How do you feel about yourself as you obey it? How do you feel about others? So you trace it back to an earlier time in your life. 
when you felt the same feelings and heard the same messages. Did you experience or observe physical or emotional addiction? What are the valid needs of this inner figure? And how can you meet the needs of your inner addict now as an adult with the resources you have? What does it mean to you to become aware of your inner addict as you romance this figure and create a conscious relationship to it rather than allow it to influence you from the unconscious. When I was still in clinical practice, a woman called me for therapy and she told me that her boyfriend was unavailable and she needed to figure out what to do about it. We learn as therapists that the presenting problem is often not the real problem. But I agreed to see her, and this is what she described. After work, night after night, Sarah waited by the phone for her boyfriend to call. She tried to read or watch a movie, but she couldn't. She sat by the phone and ate ice cream. Night after night, I asked why she didn't call him. She was too scared to find out what he would say. So she waited and ate ice cream, and she had gained 10 pounds. I asked her to begin to observe what she was saying to herself during this experience. She was saying, if I just wait long enough, he will call. If I just have a little more ice cream, I can wait here. I asked her what she was feeling with this inner dialogue. Anxious, empty, scared. What were the bodily sensations? Empty belly, tight shoulders, and tight throat. I guided Sarah to personify this image and give it a name, the foodie. And an image, a big open mouth. The foodie always has the same thoughts, feelings, and sensations. She began to see the pattern and realized that it led to an addictive behavior that was destructive to her. Eventually, I suggested that Sarah call the boyfriend. She was frightened of rejection, but realized that the consequences of obeying her shadow character might be worse. When she finally called him, he told her he didn't want their relationship, but had been too afraid to tell her. He was already involved with someone else. She was devastated. But a few weeks later, she began to feel relief. She knew the truth, and now she could grieve the loss and move on. Now she could work on the addictive behavior. We traced back the foodie to her mother, who had had an unfaithful husband and used food to stuff down her feelings. 
Like her daughter, she was afraid to confront her husband and hear the truth. So she had modeled this behavior for Sarah. As a child, Sarah watched her mother waiting for an unavailable man <clears throat> and using food as a substitute for love. Slowly, Sarah took back control from her shadow character. When she began dating, she moved more slowly, asked more questions, and became more proactive. When she felt the foodie emerge, she took a breath, sat down to meditate, and observed the three cues. And slowly, Sarah cultivated a healthy relationship to food and to men. As we age through the lifespan and continue to repress or banish feelings, behaviors, and traits into the shadow, our shadow characters change. My new book, The Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul, is about the shadows of age, those qualities and traits that are denied or feel unacceptable to us in midlife and beyond. The first shadow character I call the inner ageist. It has internalized ageism from the collective ageist shadow and sees young as good and old as bad. With the new longevity, we see lots of people denying their age, buying into anti-aging messages and striving to stay young by maintaining a midlife pace, values and priorities and continuing to identify with their achievements. In the context of age, most of us learn that being independent, quick, productive, and strong are valued and result in rewards of approval and status. On the other hand, we learn that their opposite traits, dependent, slow, and productive, and weak, are devalued and result in disapproval and shame. And so naturally we dread the loss of these socially acceptable traits as we age, slow down, do less, and need others more. If our images of age and our associations with life after 50 remain outside of our awareness, then we're blind to them. Like my 89-year-old friend who told me he didn't want to be with old people because he wasn't like them. We deny our reality and reject a part of ourselves. It turns out that what we believe about old age actually shapes how we experience it. Research out of Yale has demonstrated that our unconscious images and beliefs in the shadow affect our physical, emotional, and mental health in late life. They even affect our longevity. So there are real consequences to what we stuff into the shadow about old. When we learn to establish a conscious relationship with those parts of ourselves that are outside of awareness, we can attune to our many inner voices and detect those that can be guides for us and those that can sabotage our dreams. When we center ourselves, quiet our minds, 
and attuned to our internal guidance, we expand our self-knowledge to include that which has been excluded, a deferred dream, a secret desire, a hidden talent. And now in later life, when the ego no longer reigns supreme, we can open ourselves and allow these banished feelings and fantasies to be heard. So for you, what about old is stuffed into your dark room? What stereotypes, fantasies, and images about aging are you carrying unknowingly, whatever age you are, into your late life? I had a 30-year-old who read my book and said to me recently, um, I'm, I'm not going to grow old in the same way that I was before. So whatever generation you're in, ask yourself, what about old is stuffed into the closet? Now let's explore some positive shadow content before we get to our discussion. As the conscious personality develops and we express certain traits and feelings and talents, those that remain unexpressed get stuffed away, creating what Jung called the unlived life. This process of expression and repression is a natural, inevitable developmental journey. But the content that gets repressed is not merely negative. Our gifts and talents, unfulfilled dreams and desires lie dormant as well. In some families, athletic gifts are praised and encouraged, and in others, they're seen as trivial. In some families, artistic talent is praised, and in others, it's seen as a way of avoiding hard work. So if we grow up in a family in which our unique gift is not valued, it gets sacrificed into the dark. Write, please write down these questions and take a few minutes to contemplate them. What did your family encourage or how, how did your family encourage or limit your creative expression? What talents or dreams lie buried in your shadow? How do your relationships and careers encourage or limit your creative expression? Which unfulfilled talents and dreams do you want to reclaim from the shadow now? What stops you? There's a shadow character that you may be able to identify that's stopping you. And what are the consequences 
of obeying the shadow and not heeding the call. As you continue to uncover and explore your shadow characters, you can use creative media to dialogue with them, coaxing them into awareness. You'll want to create a safe, quiet environment, maybe light a candle, and then center yourself. And observe your fantasies of a different life from the one you're living. What are your daydreams and fantasies of your unlived life? What message are they bringing to you? And you can observe your dreams at night and watch for shadow figures that carry traits and engage in actions that would be unacceptable to you. They are parts of you coming to visit from the shadow. When you've personified a shadow character and identified its repeating voice, begin a dialogue with it. Probe its meaning, asking questions of identity and purpose. Who are you? Why are you part of me? What were you protecting in my early life? And what is your purpose now? You can write a letter to your shadow character. You can write a letter from your shadow character. And this will further enable you to distance from it and simply observe it. Also, when you've personified a shadow character and identified its image, its gender, age, ethnicity, and role, paint or draw the image, and then contemplate it and allow the image to take on a life of its own like Dorian's painting. This will further enable you to visualize it outside of yourself. So you can use dreamwork, writing, drawing, painting, sculpting, movement, allow it to open you to the creative unconscious, the source of archetypal images, dreams, and yearnings. This is the promise of shadow work. You can diffuse the negative emotions that erupt in daily life. You can learn to identify your shadow character's valid hidden needs. You can release the guilt and shame associated with negativity. You can recognize projections that color your opinions of others. You can create deeper intimacy with others through your expanded self-knowledge and accountability rather than blame. And you can achieve a more genuine, complete self-acceptance. These are my first two books about the shadow. Meeting the Shadow is an anthology of um, experts on the topic. And it ranges through every arena of life and how the shadow shows up. Romancing the Shadow is an authored book that really develops the method of shadow work and most especially in relationships.
This is the new book, um, The Inner Work of Age. And I found out for you that it is available at Amazon UK, Blackwells, Waterstones, Hive, and Wordery. So hopefully it's available where you buy books if you're interested in learning about the shadows of age. Um, I put up another symposium in here because if age is um, your subject and you want to take a deeper dive, there is an online three-day symposium happening, which you can find at retreat.pacifica.edu. Um, I'm hosting the three days and we'll have presentations from Thomas Moore and all kinds of depth psychologists and spiritual teachers to explore aging as a spiritual practice. So the first question I'd like to ask here is from uh, Rachel. So Rachel says that procrastination is definitely in her shadow. Um, she struggles so much to overcome this. How would you work with this in a session using shadow work? So this is a really common shadow character. And there's something about either avoiding either beginning, continuing, or completing a project that makes the, this shadow character come up. So who is the procrastinator in you? First, you identify what you're saying to yourself. Like, I don't know you, so I don't know when it shows up. Let's say um, it's around homework because you're at this university. Let's say you procrastinate doing homework. What are you saying to yourself in that moment? Try to catch it. Or what are you feeling? Or if you're really body-centered, what's going on in your body as you attempt to begin or complete your homework? Or whatever it is. Could be a business project, could be a creative project. See if you can slow down enough to catch the three cues, okay? Because usually there's all this noise inside our minds and we're not discriminating, we're not noticing. It's just noise and then we fall into identifying with it, right, Rachel? So we think that's who we are in the moment. It's just that thought or that feeling. So see if you can find those three repetitive cues. And then, Next step, personify it as the procrastinator. So we have a name, if that's okay with you. I like everybody to name their own shadow characters, but for this purpose, let's do that. We have a name. Who is it? What does it look like? Is there an image? And some people quickly say, oh my God, it's my father. Oh, it's my mother. Oh, it's the nun. Oh, it's the school teacher. But rather than associate it with a particular person, this is a part of you. How old is the procrastinator character? Not you. You're separating from it. This part of you. What is the gender? What is the... Um, and then we're going to trace back and look at what is the story the origin story of the procrastinator. Did you experience that in high school? 
Did you experience that in middle school, in, in elementary school? I don't know what you call those in standard something or other, I think, um, in the UK. So, you know, see if you can trace it back and identify a message or a behavior or a look from someone that created that character. See if you can find the source of it. Is either of your parents a procrastinator? Or I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say that. Is e does either one of them do that behavior? Okay? And then you do your centering practice and you begin to watch when it comes up as you begin your homework or your project. Or you try to complete it. There are actually different valid needs for the procrastinator with beginning a project and completing a project. I had a client once say to me, I'll never finish this project because I can't imagine what my life would be like if I weren't doing it. It's just too scary. So he, he, you know, he procrastinated completion. So that's a different issue than beginning. So these are a few kind of clues for you to get started if you're interested in this method. The procrastinator has valid needs. Maybe it fears failing or humiliation. Maybe it feels um, it can't do it well enough, perfectly enough. What is your procrastinator telling you and why? Where does that message come from? And then once you break your identification from it, right, and you actually feel your momentum on the project, you say, okay, procrastinator, I see you, I hear your message, I'm moving ahead anyway. Okay. 100%, that's a great answer. And just to build on what uh, Connie has already said, there's a great book, um, many of you will already have heard of it, it's called um, The War of Art. And it's just, it's a great tool for overcoming procrastination. I find it very helpful in projects I've tried to get over the line. So it's worth checking out. It's by Stephen Pressfield, The War of Art. Um, so we've got one here from Nickel and it's a similar question from Josephine as well. So Nickel asks, um, what is the interplay between shadow and unconscious trauma and Josephine asks, I feel that we could substitute the word trauma for shadow in many of these statements and ideas. What do you see as the relationship between the two? So two very similar questions. Great. Thank you. So, you know, um, all of us experience trauma in some ways, emotional, physical, um, psychic trauma of some kind. And there are many different available for working with that. You back? So there are many different methodologies for working with that. What I would suggest is that our essential nature, our spiritual essence is not traumatized. There is a part of us that carries the trauma and another part of us that doesn't. So we could say that the trauma is in the body-mind because we know that from all the body-based work now that there's trauma in the cells, in the nerves, in the muscles. It's not only in the mind, it's not only in the, in the emotions. 
So there's trauma in the body-mind. How do we begin to identify the limits of that? How do we begin to, I use the word personify from James Hillman, how do we begin to um, identify that part of us that carries the trauma? Because otherwise it's this big amorphous general, you know, I'm a victim of trauma and we live that story. How do we begin to just detect the part of us that's traumatized and probably in the shadow in the sense that some of it is unconscious and some of it maybe is not in the shadow because it's been identified through therapy or, or inner work of some kind. So we could say that, um, Let's say someone was traumatized by her father's rage. And so that creates a very particular shadow character that's different from someone who was traumatized by her father's abandonment. He left the family. It, has, it carries different bodily sensations, different feelings, and different consequences in her life. So let's see if we can kind of specify a shadow character that carries a specific trauma. And then how do we work with that? How do we begin to um, heal that part, that shadow character, repair it? Um, what does it need from us now? What does it need in therapy? What resources do we have to work with that? How can we ask help of others to work with that part? But first, it seems to me, we need to really identify the specificity of the shadow character that's carrying the trauma. That, uh, yeah, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm just curious, so there's an approach to treating trauma and it's a, it's a psychotherapy in general called internal family systems. Mm -hmm. And you, I, I assume you're familiar with, with mm -hmm. this approach. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's basically, you know, getting specific on the different parts of you that might have experienced the trauma and how they're acting in, in, in your, mm -hmm. in your life now. Would you, mm -hmm. I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on internal family systems, Connie, as a, as an approach to psychotherapy. So, as well, I suppose. yeah. So, you know, my framework is a little bit different in the sense that my framework is rooted in spiritual practice and Richard's is not. So it's rooted in, um, I am not that part. Okay. My, you know, I am a spiritual being, whatever we call that. I am spirit. I am a soul. I am a higher self. I am a little bit of God, whatever your language is for that. And I am not that wounded part. So in order to work with that wounded part, I have to be able to find a way to ground in who I really am and observe from there the wounded part. For me, that's really important because otherwise people can fall into the wound or the trauma or the, the, um, the child, or the addict, or the procrastinator. So we need a spiritual ground, it seems to me. And so, you know, I always teach meditation when I teach shadow work. 
for that reason so that we are centered in the truest part of ourselves and have a sense of um, refuge, the Buddhists call it refuge, or you know, a life raft. When these challenging parts come up, if you don't have the life raft and you start to re-experience your trauma, it can be scary and even damaging. So there are other differences, but that's the main one. Okay, okay. Um, next question is from Frederick. Uh, what are your views on, this is kind of intense, but what are your views on self-directed euthanasia? I see it as a realistic and courageous choice. What role does it have in the landscape of dying? Is it in the collective or personal shadow? Mm. Um, so one of the qualities of becoming an elder that I teach in the new book is mortality awareness. And the reason that mortality awareness or consciousness of our death is so important when we're in later life is if we're not really holding that awareness, we're in denial. And, you know, denial of death is in the collective shadow. I would agree with him. There, there has been a collective in Western post-industrial, post-modern culture, maybe not indigenous cultures, there has been a collective denial of death. We don't see it. We don't talk about it. We don't prepare for it. Um, I think that some of that started changing with COVID because with the pandemic, you know, we all saw death all around us and maybe lost people we loved. And I think that that has penetrated this denial a bit. I don't know whether that will last after the pandemic, but I think it's made that shift. So for me, if we're not aware of death, then we can't actually do the work of life completion. And that's essential after midlife when we have, you know, this shortened time horizon. But we can't do it. You know, a 67-year-old a friend said to me this week, I'm 67. I, I have lots of time to go. And she may. She may have three decades. And she may not. We don't know. But the point is there was a denial in that comment. So... In terms of euthanasia, that's kind of another subject. It's kind of a moral conversation that depends on beliefs. And I'm not here to tell people what to believe. My books aren't based on beliefs. And I don't, I think part of our inner work is actually to get free of our beliefs and to have direct experience. That's why I encourage meditation so much. So I'm, I'm just not going to respond to that part of the question. Okay. Well, I think you, you raised such an important point about mortality awareness. Um, I, this is a bit off topic, but I, I was listening to an interview with uh, Will Smith, uh, Will Smith from like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air recently. And he was talking about, so he found out that his father had terminal, terminal cancer. And the diagnosis, I think it was something like he had three months to live 
but he actually lived beyond that three months. So he actually lived for another three months beyond that. But every time that Will would see his dad then in the in the following three months, there was a potential that it was the very, very last time that he was going to see him. So basically it was they always had like a really meaningful goodbye and yes. they just really appreciated their time together. And then what Will was saying was that he took the lesson from that is like the real reality is is that you know the 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 next time you see somebody there's a there's a very good chance it could be the last time you see them so it's like if you can act if that was the case you're going to appreciate your time together a lot more you know so i thought it was a very it was a very interesting perspective and could enhance yes. your relationships going forward you know it can enhance your whole life there's an alchemical thing that happens when you become aware of your mortality because you recognize what do you need to say or do so that you don't die with regret? 100%. Right? What do you need to give or receive so that you can die in peace? And that changes how we live our lives now. No matter how many years there are, it changes the way we're present with other people, but also what we do with our ourselves. We prioritize what we value now. Creativity from the shadow. So if we, if there's a, a creative dream that's been there for your whole life and you recognize your mortality, you're going to, you, you're going to be more likely to live out that dream now than if you're like, oh, I have all the time in the world, I'm not gonna get sick, nothing's gonna happen, right? Then the days go by and you don't actually grab hold of them. 100%, 100%. Um, for anybody that is, uh, wants to sort of maybe keep that in mind more going forward, there's a great app. Um, again, a bit intense, but there's an app called WeCroak and they will basically send you notifications three times a day that say remember you you're going to die and they send you a quote and it's just like it just keeps it keeps it top of mind i wouldn't recommend it doing it forever but if you want to do it for a few weeks to try it out it's probably it's it's interesting um, there are spiritual traditions that teach that in memento mori is a christian tradition um there are buddhist traditions that are teach practices to walk through the cemetery or to meditate on skulls so this is a profound practice. Yeah, so important. Um, we've got one from Ruth. Um, Ruth asks, how do, you how do you befriend your shadow if it resists? Mm, I wonder if she could be more specific. The shadow always resists coming out into the light. You know, it, the definition of the shadow is that it hides. It's beneath the con it's beneath conscious awareness. That's just the definition of it. And so with shadow work, we learn how to coax it into awareness. Um, it, you know, the reason for doing this is not so much only to expand our awareness, but it's to work with the parts of us that are self-destructive or hurtful to others. So if you're in a good marriage and you love your spouse, but you keep saying critical comments, 
who is that in you? And what is the deeper need of that shadow character, the critic? And I've found over and over again that people who do that need distance. They're sabotaging the closeness because they need distance, separateness. But instead of taking that separateness in a conscious way, they're doing it unconsciously by letting that shadow um, act out. And of course that critic is going to resist, you know, um, being examined. It's just the nature of it. And that's why we need to learn, you know, from each other how to explore the critic, how to uncover it. And then we forget about it again and it acts out. And then we explore more. And that's the nature of shadow work. 100%. Um, so we've got one here, probably time for one more from uh, Charles, Charles Gordon Graham. Um, Charles says, fascinating talk. And I can see myself applying this approach in my therapy work. One question is, a lot of focus on shadow is about what was repressed by the family and peers, etc. But what about the role of oppressive governments and political regimes in the individual and collective shadow? Beautiful question. I thought it was going to be about religion. That's where I thought he was going. But okay, so, um, you know, right now, we watch politicians shadows act out every single day in your country in my country it's all about the shadows acting out right now and yes there is collective oppression which is kind of analogous to individual repression there is a sense um by the the government or the the laws about what's okay and what's not okay behavior, what's legal and illegal. Just like in our families, we learn what's acceptable and what's taboo, right? So it's very analogous. So we learn in school about um, the larger collective shadow issues. One of the ones I wrote about in the new book is ageism. So, you know, we live in a really ageist culture right now in which elders are not revered, in which people are living in age-segregated housing. The healthcare system is ageist. You know, I'm not going to give you this operation because you're in your 80s. I mean, there are so many examples of ageism in our culture and very few models of... Um, elders with real vitality and self-awareness, right? So how does that affect us? Because that's an example of what he's asking. How does this collective shadow affect us individually? We internalize the message and we create a personal shadow that I call the inner ageist. But we could say that about many collective shadows and what is determined to be acceptable and not acceptable behavior. I think that, um, you know, with all of the discussion now about racial equity, we've seen that um, racism was in the collective shadow for so long, and it's kind of come out now into the light. But we also see that we can't legislate away racism 
It's become clear. And why is that? Because it's in the shadow of every person. It's a bias, a prejudice that's unconscious in most people of every race. It's unconscious. And so if we don't do the inner work along with the social justice work, it's not going to change. Whether it's ageism, racism, or whatever your favorite cause is. And so um, the, our personal shadows are sort of embedded in our family shadows, which are embedded in our collective shadows, right? Our religious and cultural shadows and our global shadow issue. I mean, climate change has been in the global shadow until now. But look at the resistance to doing anything about it. Talk about resistance, right? So yes, there are these layers of the shadow and my sort of advocacy is for inner work along with our social justice work for the common good. I think that's that's so, so important and it's often overlooked in all the, in all the, the, the talk about this, you know, that's so important. Right. Um, so yeah, Connie, that is pretty much all we've got time for. I want to say a huge thank you for the, the excellent presentation today and for sharing some of your wisdom with us. Um, so your your new book is now out. Um, My new the, book is out. And it's all about shifting from role to soul. Yeah. And people can get it. They can learn more about it via your website, conniesweig.com. Oh, well, and, I think you didn't hear my comments probably. So I looked up all of the bookstores. It's available on Amazon UK, Waterstones, Wordery, um, uh, wherever you buy your books in the UK. Fantastic, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Well, um, we'll send a link out with the with, with the resources tomorrow to Connie's book as well. So, um, yeah, everybody, I want to say a huge thank you for tuning in today, spending your, your Sunday um, geeking out on psychology lectures. <laughs> Fair play, you know. <laughs> um, Very true. A huge thank you to Lally as well, who's been in the background helping with customer support and just making sure this all runs smoothly. So thank you so much, Lally. And yeah, everybody, thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and hope to see you guys all soon. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you all. This episode is sponsored by our upcoming Day on Changing Consciousness taking place at the University of Greenwich on the 26th of June, 2022. This will be the Weekend University's first in-person event in over two years, and it's shaping up to be a special occasion. The lectures will focus on consciousness paradigms that go beyond the brain, how they work, why they matter, and how understanding them can enhance your everyday experience of reality. We'll have talks on Panpsychism, Is Everything Conscious? by Dr. Philip Goff, from egocentric to ecocentric changing consciousness through psychedelics from dr sam gandhi and is reality an illusion by professor donald hoffman who will be appearing via live video link by attending live you can interact with the speakers in the q a sessions connect with like-minded participants during the conference and get cpd certification and should you be unable to attend in person you'll also be able to tune in from the comfort of home with a live stream pass as a listener of this podcast, you can get a disc on your ticket if you go to bit.ly forward slash ccj hyphen twu 
and use the discount code POD when registering. That's POD, all one word, when registering.